the parade of witnesses as the, as the prosecution laid out its case was one of the most extraordinary things I had seen as a reporter. It was like watching the entire history of the Cold War unfold in front of your eyes. That was former Associated Press reporter Vicki Sacherie describing what it was like covering the case of George Trofimov, who in 2001 was convicted of espionage, making him the highest-ranking military officer ever convicted of such a crime. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a podcast that takes an in-depth look into Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the case of George Trofimov, a retired U.S. Army colonel from Melbourne, who 18 years ago was sentenced to life in prison for spying on behalf of the former Soviet Union. Trofimov was paid by the KGB for military secrets he handed over while a U.S. intelligence officer in Germany during a 25-year span. My special guest for this episode will be former AP and Tampa Tribune reporter Vicky Sacherie. George Trofimov is either one of the greatest spies ever to betray America or a loyal army officer who spent a career defending this country. One thing's for sure, Colonel Trofimov, who retired from the U.S. Army Reserve, is the highest-ranking American officer ever convicted of espionage. That was Scott Pelley, former anchor of the CBS Evening News, who in 2002 did a segment on 60 Minutes 2 profiling the case of George Trofimov, who months earlier had been sentenced to federal prison for life. Prosecutors in the case referred to Trofimov as the perfect spy because of the length of time he carried out his crimes without ever being caught. Greed was a motivator for Trofimov, and it also led to his demise. Vicky Sacherie covered the case for the Associated Press from beginning to end. Trofimov was arrested in June 2000, convicted one year later, and sentenced just a few months after that. It was a complex, yet fast-moving criminal case that took place nearly two full decades ago, but Sacherie's memories of it remain vivid. Here she is recalling what she was doing when she got the call to go cover Trofimov's arraignment at U.S. District Court in Tampa. You know, it's funny, like, there's very few stories that a reporter will cover over a long career that sort of stick in their mind, like that detail. I mean, obviously big, dramatic events do, but for some reason, I remember this as clearly as it happened yesterday, because it was like a really rare day where I had time to, like, leave the office for lunch. (laughs) So I was at a favorite Cuban restaurant in Tampa and I get a phone call from Miami saying we just got a press release from the U.S. Attorney's Office. A individual who's been arrested as a former spy for the Soviet Union is going to be arraigned at 2 (laughs) o'clock you need to get to the courthouse. And it was the one day maybe, I don't know, in like probably six months that I actually could get away from my desk for lunch. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me, right? You don't get press releases very often from the U.S. Attorney's Office saying that they've arrested a potential Russian spy. The arrest came as a surprise to Trofimov himself. 
wearing a sports shirt, shorts, and tennis shoes, Trofimov showed up June 14th, 2000 at the Tampa Airport Hilton, expecting to pick up $30,000 in cash. The money, he was told, was for the work he did for the KGB years earlier. Nobody showed up to hand him a briefcase. Instead, a group of FBI agents swarmed him and whisked him away. The next thing the 73-year-old retiree knew, he was standing before a judge inside a federal courtroom. Trofimov, according to the U.S. government, was paid $250,000 for turning over to the Soviets more than 50,000 pages of secret materials from 1969 until 1994. Trofimov was jailed and stayed jailed until his conviction and sentencing, at which time he was transported to a high-security federal prison. Before then, he lived a quiet life with his fifth wife, a woman much younger than him. They shared a house in a gated community on Patriot Drive in Melbourne. He worked part-time as a bagger for Publix. Sasha Ree instantly knew by the list of charges and by the looks of the defendant that this was going to be a very different assignment compared to the criminal cases she typically covered. Trapamov um, is was kind of an interesting figure because in, in Florida, if you cover criminal justice system and in in fact mostly the federal justice system, you're dealing you know with some some very um, potentially dangerous individuals who are charged with very, very serious crimes like drug trafficking. And, um, you know, there have been cases that I had covered that involved international terrorism, but they tended to be, you know, sort of young pe- younger people um, in the prime of your life and in their lives. And then, you know, here you had George Trofimov, who was in his late 70s, um, you know, so an elderly man being brought in to the, the courtroom, uh, just with very, very serious charges, but, you know, such a different type of case than what I had seen before. The son of Russian immigrants, Trofimov was born in Germany in 1927. He enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1948 and became a naturalized U.S. citizen in 1951. He was commissioned in the U.S. Army Reserve in 1953. He served three years of active duty, and three years after that, He was hired by the Army as a civilian supervisor in military intelligence. From 1969 until 1994, he served as civilian chief of the U.S. Army element at the Nuremberg Joint Interrogation Center. It was during that time that authorities said Trofimov simultaneously worked as a Soviet spy. after World War II, became a, he was a German citizen, became a German sort of civilian hire for the American, continued American military presence in Nuremberg after World War II. And of course, everybody knows Nuremberg because of the Nuremberg trials. Well, his job was basically managing a facility where American Army intelligence interviewed people who were defecting from now as the Iron Curtain came down from behind the Iron Curtain or people who had information in sort of post-World War II Europe. And so he had access to a lot of information and secret information that maybe an ordinary civilian employee for the U.S. Army in Germany in that era did not. And essentially he had unsecured access to this information. 
It was around 1969 when Trofimov started working in Nuremberg that he was recruited to work for the KGB by a close childhood friend of his, someone who had grown up to become the Archbishop of the Russian Orthodox Church in Vienna, Austria. In fact, it was the Archbishop he would give his secret film to, the film from the tiny camera he used to photograph the scads of sensitive files he had access to. Because he was the chief, Trofimov had access to everything. The Nuremberg Joint Interrogation Center was set up by the U.S. military and joint allies in 1955 so that Soviet defectors and refugees from the Soviet bloc could be debriefed. Most of what went on in that facility remained classified. It closed in 1995. The list of allegations against Trofimov was long. He secretly took classified documents related to national defense out of the Joint Interrogation Center and put them in the hands of KGB agents. He took photos, lots of them, and he often hand-carried the film to KGB intelligence officers or to his archbishop friend, who wound up dying about a year before Trofimov's arrest. In exchange for all the materials he handed over, he received cash payments from the KGB. He not only hid this from the U.S. government, but he hid it from all of his wives. They knew nothing about his activities. The Soviet Union was so appreciative of Trofimov's work that he was awarded the Order of the Red Banner, which is the oldest Soviet award, and was presented to citizens and non-citizens alike for their bravery on behalf of the USSR. During his first court appearance, Trofimov said he didn't have enough money for a lawyer. That was surprising, considering he lived in a nice house in Melbourne, Florida, and received retirement pay from the Army. It was learned that Trofimov really did have financial problems, largely because he no longer had that extra income from the KGB to finance his jet-setting lifestyle. More on that later. Neighbors and acquaintances of Trofimov, who were interviewed by the St. Petersburg Times after his arrest, told the paper that he was a jovial guy who loved to garden and play tennis. He did, however, have a cruel side. One co-worker at Publix said Trofimov would get really mean if anyone left the carts out for too long. But everyone who was interviewed was stunned at the news that Trofimov, who had spent most of his adult life in some capacity serving the United States, was actually a traitor. It seemed the FBI didn't know about Trofimov's activities until they were almost over. Three years before his arrest, an undercover agent sent a letter to Trofimov in Melbourne. That was the first time the FBI reached out to Trofimov. The letter read, quote, There's a problem. Please call. Your old friends. Trofimov reached out, and he wound up communicating with a Russian-speaking undercover FBI agent. That agent got Trofimov to admit to decades' worth of espionage. The way the agent got him to admit it was by tricking him into thinking there was a debt to him that still had to be paid. The KGB hadn't fully compensated him for all of his work, at least that was the story given to him. With the promise of more money coming to him, Trofimov kept talking. After three years of obtaining evidence, a sting was set up at the Tampa Hotel. 
Trofimov was under the impression he was there to pick up $30,000 worth of back pay for his services. Here again is Vicky Sachery. Yeah, money was definitely a component to it. He was well compensated by the KGB for his efforts. And he ended up getting caught. At, you know, at the finally, the, case, the crux of the case is he is an undercover agent reaches out to him posing as, a, as the KGB saying, we think we owe you some money. <laughs> and he was still, even in his later years, having financial trouble, and he wanted the money. So what finally lures him into a scenario where the government can get these sort of undercover tapes of him is that he was after the money. And that was part of his defense was, well, I was having financial troubles and I made, in those tapes that were made, I, I said those things because I was trying to get more money out of this person because I was having financial troubles. So the money motivation is there. Government officials were tipped off to Trofimov's crimes by a KGB archivist, Vasily Mitrokin, who had defected from Russia to Great Britain in 1992. Mitrokin smuggled handwritten notes out of KGB archives that provided clues about the identities of hundreds of Soviet spies. Among the spies Mitrokin outed was Trofimov, who actually was arrested on suspicion of espionage as far back as 1994. But it was the Germans who arrested Trofimov. They released him after they realized they wouldn't have been able to prove their case within the five-year statute of limitations. The U.S. has no such statute, and it took the FBI seven years to build its case against Trofimov. They collected evidence for four years before reaching out to him for the first time. On June 4, 2001, ten days before the one-year anniversary of Trofimov's arrest, his trial began in U.S. District Court in Tampa. What a trial it was. For jurors, media, and other spectators, it was a lot like sitting through a 20th century European history class. A really, really interesting one. It was so interesting for Vicky Sachery that she didn't want to miss a day, no matter what other news was breaking outside the walls of that courthouse. When I knew that I had a story that was going to be a significant story for me, just as a journalist and as a person, you know, watching this event unfold, was really on the, the first day of the trial. And so when you look at the AP and you're covering a trial, and sort of the typical pattern is you cover openings, you cover a couple of key witnesses, and you cover, cover closings and verdicts. For an AP reporter to sit through a trial every single day, it's got to be a pretty significant case. In part because, you know, there's very few reporters in any AP bureau, and you're juggling a lot of, of stories at a time. And because Florida is a major generator of national news, you might have four or five major stories that you're covering at any one time. So to commit the resources of going and sitting at a trial, particularly in federal court, we could not have cell phones with you back in the day. Um, so you really are out of contact. So if something else breaks, like for your editor to get a hold of you, it's like going into federal court, like you're committing like real resources. And I remember going to cover openings and calling my editor and saying, you know, I'm going to come back tomorrow because this just sounds like between the witness list that we've just been shown, I think I need to come back tomorrow. 
then the third day and the fourth day. Every day I would go cover the trial and I would call my editor. I'd be like, I got to come back tomorrow. Like, oh no, there's more coming. There's more coming. The parade of witnesses as the, as the prosecution laid out its case was one of the most extraordinary things I had seen as a reporter. It was like watching the entire history of the Cold War unfold in front of your eyes. The parade of witnesses the government called to the stand was a who's who of high-ranking military officers and intelligence agents from both sides of the Cold War. There were four-star generals who testified. So did a convicted spy and even some ex-KGB officials. Much of the testimony felt like it was ripped out of a Jack Higgins novel. It was like being teleported to a different time in history. Not really sort of an information security system that we would, you know, today we, there are modern systems that control the storage of information. Their information was in files, and he was able to photograph these files and pass this information on to his KGB handlers. Did he use one of those really tiny cameras that you slide sideways? I remember a little tiny camera, yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it was the one exactly the one that slide, but there was issue, yeah, there was, you know, photographs and documents and things like that. It really did play out as a case of, of what you have probably seen in, you know, Hollywood depictions of what Cold War spying looked like. Um, there was one point in the trial where the government was trying to sort of establish for the jury how um, counterintelligence worked um, during the Cold War. And they had these pictures from New York City in the 1960s of, you know, KGB agents getting drops of information at telephone booths in Manhattan and you know they're the, like the grainy black and white photos and it, it, it was just absolutely fascinating to see this era kind of come to life. One of the government's key witnesses was former KGB agent Boris Yuzin, who in spite of never meeting Trofimov provided crucial testimony for the government. He gave jurors a sense of how his former agency recruited Americans to spy for them. Yusin said the Soviets used money, ideology, and psychology to convince people to work for them. In 1975, eight years after joining the KGB, Yusin was part of a group of Russian scientists who traveled to the United States as part of an exchange. He wound up at the University of California, Berkeley, where he actively recruited people. That's where he learned that Americans were tough to recruit. They were deeply patriotic, and even those that had issues with their government were adamantly opposed to communism. Yuzin was enlightened during his trip to the U.S. In particular, he loved the free speech that Americans enjoyed. He decided not to defect, but he did reach out to the FBI. He agreed to work as a double agent. Robert Hansen, perhaps the most infamous Soviet spy in U.S. history, was the one who turned in Yusin to the KGB. Yusin wound up jailed for 10 months without any legal representation, and then he was tried over two days in Moscow and convicted. Two others who were convicted along with him were executed, but Yusin was only sentenced to 15 years. But it was hard time. He spent his time as a prisoner at a Russian labor camp, commonly known as a gulag. 
He wound up freed after five years. While imprisoned, the Soviet Union fell and Boris Yeltsin came to power in Russia, and he granted amnesty to political prisoners. Soon thereafter, Yuzin moved to the United States to live out the rest of his life. He was just one of the witnesses called to the stand. There were many more whose stories were just as fascinating. Jurors heard from the undercover FBI agent who brought down Trofimov. His name was Dmitry Drujinsky. It took 19 months of communication before Drujinsky, who Trofimov knew as Igor, met the suspect for a face-to-face sit-down. The two talked for six hours, and the conversation was secretly video-recorded. Jurors watched a portion of it. They also listened to audio recordings of phone conversations Drujinsky had with Trofimov. During their first phone conversation, Trofimov had no desire to work with Igor, who had asked him to help him with an official project with a Russian embassy. Trofimov told the man over the phone, quote, I don't want to have anything to do with this at all. Then he said, any kind of contact for me is suicide. Drujinsky tells Trofimov that an analyst working at KGB headquarters has disappeared, as have the files that Trofimov provided to the KGB. The man on the other line warned Trofimov that he could be in danger. Trofimov was unmoved, at least at first. He said he would swear on a stack of Bibles that he did nothing wrong. Drujinsky kept trying, and four years later, in August 1998, Trofimov finally cracked. Six months later, Drujinsky and Trofimov met inside that Tampa hotel room. It was during that conversation that Trofimov admitted to a lifetime of spying for the Soviets. Perhaps the biggest takeaway from the conversation was Trofimov telling Drujinsky, quote, In my soul, I'm Russian. I'm not an American. I was never an American. Drujinsky also asked Trofimov why he was a spy for the Soviets, and he told him, quote, The money is nice, but foremost, I am doing this for the motherland. There were instances later, however, that showed Trofimov was deeply motivated by money. Fearing the bank would foreclose on his home, Trofimov told Drujinsky that he needed $43,000 to pay off his second mortgage. Then he said he would settle for $30,000. The audio tapes played for jurors also showed that Trofimov relied on his payments from the KGB to cover his luxuries. He also had been married a lot, and divorces can often be expensive. Here again is Vicky Sachery. You know, he had a lot of wives. He had five wives. And there was a point, in whether it was in his testimony and other testimony, that sort of touched on, you know, what potentially the motive for him doing this, which really was money. He was a man who lived well beyond his means. Um, he liked Corvettes. He traveled. He had a lot of young, very young wives over the course of the years. He seemed like he was someone who was living a life that required a lot more money than um, someone who was a civilian employee for the army um, could maintain. He liked to travel, but I got the impression that he, he liked to party quite a bit. You know, he liked the good life and that that position for the army didn't quite provide him the life he had imagined for himself. 
Drzezinski was a solid witness, but he may not have been the most vital witness for the government. That distinction may belong to retired KGB general Oleg Kalugin. Here is Vicky Sachery describing Kalugin's testimony. One of the most important things that he testified to in this trial was that he had interacted face to face with George Trofimov as a KGB asset twice, and so he was able to give that eyewitness, you know, point to him <laughs> sitting there at the defense table. That's the person that, when I was a general for the KGB, I interacted with him. Um, so that was pretty powerful testimony in terms of identifying Trofimov as someone who had been working for the KGB. When you have a former general point <laughs> to an individual face. I met with that person twice when I was with the KGB. That, that really does provide that direct evidence. Kalugin said Trofimov was known by him as Marcus. A prosecutor asked Kalugin to point out the man in the courtroom who he knew as Marcus. Kalugin pointed directly at Trofimov. After he pointed at him, he said, quote, He looks almost the same. He's lost some weight. Is older. Obviously, we all are. Kalugin also told jurors he had met Trofimov twice during the 1970s, once to discuss the spy's duties, and another time while Trofimov was vacationing as the KGB's guest at a resort in Kyrenia. Kalugin, perhaps angry over a demotion from the KGB, retired from the agency in 1990, and five years later moved to the United States, taking a job with AT&T. He would later write a memoir of his career as a KGB agent. He mentioned Trofimov's spy work, but never mentioned him in the book by name. Kalugin wished he never had to finger Trofimov. It went against his professional ethics, even though he had left that life behind. But he didn't have a choice. He was subpoenaed, and he told the court, quote, I am a U.S. resident and I have to abide by the laws of this land. The last witness of the trial capped it off like no one else could. The defendant himself, George Trofimov. He had some, you know, he had some sharp edges to him. He was a very forceful personality. To this day, like one of the, the sort of great dramatic <laughs> exchanges that I've seen as a reporter is this person really trying to affect this persona of, I'm harmless, I'm a harmless old man, I would never have done this when, you know, the government did have pretty substantial evidence to the contrary. Trofimov told jurors that he was a descendant of old Russian nobility. He said, quote, My ancestry goes all the way back to Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great and the whole Romanov dynasty. That's how he kicked off his testimony. He also told jurors that he harbored a deep-seated hatred for communism and had a distinguished career in the U.S. Army. He joined the army for the purpose of defeating communism. That's what he told jurors. Communists, he insisted, murdered his grandparents during the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. He wore a sweater while on the stand, perhaps to give off the impression that he was a genteel, grandfatherly man incapable of being the traitor the government had portrayed him to be. But in the end, his testimony did not help his situation. The jury could see pretty clearly, like, the the range of personality that he had. Yeah, he was not this quiet little retiree 
you know, he just had the nice, you know, the nice little house in Melbourne and was bagging groceries at Publix on the side. <laughs> that was not the real George Trofimoff. Jurors were told that Trofimoff did unspeakable damage to U.S. security. He also endangered the families of the defectors who were coming into the joint interrogation center that he supervised in Nuremberg. That facility was described by prosecutors as the Ellis Island of Eastern Bloc migration. It served as a base of anti-Soviet information for NATO officials. That meant it was incredibly dangerous for those people to have Trofimov supervising it. It is believed that retaliation was inflicted on those defectors' families back home. Here is Sasha Ree talking to me in more detail of the damage Trofimov did. I do remember there being a strong component of that there were American assets in the Soviet Union who became known to the KGB and were executed. And the, the, their identities had been in this information that had been in this Joint Intelligence Center in Nuremberg. So from the documents that Trofimov had had access to, these yeah. people and shared, these people were revealed and that they were, had been executed by the KGB. During his testimony, Trofimov tried to convince jurors he was talking to Drzhinsky because he needed money. He was in debt, which was why he was working at Publix, and he knew he wasn't going to get any money out of Drzhinsky by simply being friendly to him. He went on to tell jurors that he had to say something to convince Drujinsky to give him tens of thousands of dollars. He had to just go with it. If his intent was to charm the jury, he failed. He would try using analogies or meandering anecdotes, but somehow none of them seemed relevant to the questions he was asked. He would mention what it was like celebrating Christmas in Austria or driving uphill in the snow. His ramblings were wearing thin on jurors. Before a restroom break, one juror gave the bailiff a note that was intended for the judge. The note stated, quote, Your Honor, could we please have the witness answer the question asked without the additional narratives? In all my years of covering criminal trials, I have never heard of a juror urging the judge to do a better job to prevent his or her witness from straying from the subject. But that apparently happened during this trial. The judge did warn Trofimov to be more concise with his answers. There were moments during Trofimov's testimony that jurors literally laughed out loud at some of his statements. Prosecutors described the defendant's story to the jury as, quote, the stupidest thing you ever heard. On June 26, 2001, three weeks after the trial began, jurors returned after a mere 90 minutes in the deliberation room. They unanimously agreed he was guilty of espionage. The jury foreman told the media, quote, he claimed to be an American, that he served the country for the past 46 years. I believe he betrayed his country. Three days later, the Tampa Tribune published an editorial about Trofimov with a headline, From Cold Warrior to Cold Storage. It was over. The 74-year-old was going to spend the rest of his life in prison. It became official September 27, 2001, 13 days after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. 
to prosecutors, Trofimov's conviction and life sentence took on a different meaning after 9-11. Here again is Vicki Sachery. After he was sentenced, the federal prosecutor, um, Larry Furrow, came out onto the courthouse steps to talk to us as reporters, and we were really like, within weeks of 9-11. I mean, this is, 9-11 is as fresh as it can possibly be. Um, and I asked the question, I remember asking the question, in light of what we've just experienced as a nation, for you as, as a prosecutor, what does this verdict say about national security? What does this verdict, you know, what is, you know, in the context of where we are as a country having suffered this horrendous attack, you know, what message do you think this verdict, or this verdict sends? And, you know, he was very sincere that, you know, the, the damage that can be done by individuals to national security. It is expensive and it can cost people's lives. And, you know, George Trofimov, beyond sort of being this kind of interesting figure, George Trofimov, the information that he gave the Soviets cost people their lives. He identified American assets that were working in the Soviet. Those people died. And so, you know, having this word or this sentencing come down in this post 9-11 moment was really, really significant. I think everybody was really feeling the sense of, of people doing things, and regardless of the motive, whether they were you know, doing it out of a sense of loyalty to a homeland or for financial gain, which clearly dropped them off. There was a financial element to his interest in providing information to the Soviets. But, but that betrayal had a real human cost to it. it in March 2002, Trofimov's interview with 60 Minutes 2 aired. He continued to plead his innocence. Sitting across from Scott Pelley, Trofimov called himself a patriot. He said, quote, Let me put it this way. My past proves who I belong to. There's not one dark spot or moment of suspicion in my whole life. Pelley, at one point, told him, Either you're a spy or you're the unluckiest man on earth. Trofimov, without hesitating, said he was indeed the unluckiest man. Sasha Rees still remembers that nationally televised interview. What do you remember about that 60 Minutes interview? You know, I just remember it. Again, it was kind of George Trofimov grandstanding. Like, it was a great platform for him to, you know, get up there and deny <laughs> this life that he had led. Um, you know, and, and I think what struck me when I saw the video was the, the there's a physical toll that takes place when people go through the federal criminal justice system, even the youngest <laughs> defendants that I've watched over the years. Um, the stress, uh, the federal prison is a really unpleasant place to be. There is a physical toll that will show up on any defendant over the course of them <laughs> during the trial. And I was, remember watching that 60 Minutes piece and seeing George Trofimov sitting there doing that interview. Now, like in his late 70s, early 80s, looking exactly like <laughs> he did in court that day, like kind of strong and defiant. And he had health issues. I mean, he was, you know, like any elderly person, I want to say he had some issues with diabetes or some he had some sort of chronic health issues he was managing but just looking 
like sort of strong and forceful and not backing down really in any way, shape or form. Um, he is a really interesting character in in that aspect. He was and remained even through that interview really defiant. Trofimov never breathed free air again. He died September 19th, 2014 at the Federal Penitentiary in Victorville, California. He was 87 years old. Naturally, I asked Vicky whether reminiscing about this case following the 2016 election and the subsequent report and testimony from former FBI Director Robert Mueller gives her a different perspective. She gave me a thoughtful answer. What I find fascinating most as sort of a journalist and frankly now as someone who's outside of journalism but still you know very much interested in current events is that the history that we've experienced with the 20th century history now as we're moving into this deep into this new millennium is that you know they say the past is never past right there are these lingering effects of the world as it existed in the mid 20th century that we still continue to see play out on a daily basis. As someone who loves history and has studied history, to see these lingering effects still is absolutely fascinating. You know, the international intrigue (laughs) does not go away. And, you know, we live in such a different world, and you would think that that would change, but it really doesn't. There are people who I greatly admire who have pursued justice for, for people from that era who did really horrendous things. And I think we're now getting to this, to this age where you know, all of these people have died, or if not, they're so, so, so elderly. So we may not see many more cases like this, but you still see the threads of that era in current events playing out today. And that it just emphasizes for me how important it is for young people really know history, to understand, you know, what happened on a global scale decades ago. Um, Because it, it doesn't go away. It doesn't just end. In the end, the entire experience of covering the George Trofimov case was an education of what the Cold War was like between two superpowers that distrusted each other. Additionally, the latest revelations about Russian involvement in the 2016 election whether you think it was substantial enough to be impeachable or ridiculously overblown by those embittered by a Trump election, was a reminder that the remnants of that Cold War culture have had a lasting effect. And I don't want to classify it as a game in terms of it's trivial, but the, you know, the practices of international intelligence and trying to manipulate, you know, trying to manipulate public opinion, trying to manipulate elections, trying to you know, get, gain the upper hand, trying to destabilize nations. You know, that is spycraft, right? And that's not changed at all. It just takes on different forms. There's new tools that come around. <laughs> you know, they find new ways to do it. And it is, I think we have a, a, an awareness, given the conversations that have occurred and, and the events that have occurred in the last few years, that this is still, you know, this is sort of still part of the, the international reality of how the United States exists with other powerful nations. Thank you for listening. Tune in again in a few weeks for an all-new episode of Sun Crime State. 
You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Thank you.